Good evening, everybody. How are you? Oh man, that that does not bear good news. Yeah, it's been a. You guys have been had a really sad day at Hume Lake today. Is that how it is? All right. Well, it's nice to see some of you back. Nice to see some of you for the first time. Nice to be opening God's Word with you again. We're in Daniel chapter 5 tonight, so if you've been working with us all week, you knew that already, and if you're just joining us, uh, the great news is you can go back and read Daniel 1 through 4 and you'll be caught up by tomorrow, no problem. So uh, tonight, I will say this, for those of you who have been part of the ongoing study, um, there is a chance <clears throat> that Daniel chapter 5 will feel somewhat redundant to you. And, and what I want to say to you as we get to that redundancy here in a second is that that's actually kind of what I want you to think about for a second. So if, as we're reading this, you go, this feels a little bit like Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 2. It feels like God's having to do the same things with these people over and over again. Uh, hold on to that feeling, right? If, if in your sort of, in the mind as you're sitting in this section tonight, if you're thinking, man, I wish Daniel 5 was a little more exciting because it feels a little bit like stuff we've already looked at, I want you to think about how that feels and hold on to it. We'll talk about it as we proceed. But essentially what we have in Daniel chapter 5, some time has proceeded since Daniel 4, and in fact Nebuchadnezzar is no longer on the scene. His son Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. And what we will see transpire in Daniel chapter 5, which by the way is backed up by, uh, by world history, right? So this is one of those places where uh, there is no question. of th The Medes and the Persians basically take over Babylon by the end of Daniel chapter 5, and this is the way history records that this goes down. So it's, uh, th there's not a conflict between the biblical account and the historical account for what that's worth. Um, but it's a bad day for King Belshazzar. Let me say that. Let's read it together, and then we'll sort of walk through it together. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. If you ever wondered where the idiom comes from, the writing on the wall, here it is. This is where that, this, that's, a, that's a biblical reference, right? The fingers of human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts, thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation." 
Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Before we read on, and we're just going to finish reading it here in a second, but let's just talk about a couple of things. First thing I just want you to notice as we're reading the story is that Belshazzar, the king, his response to the writing on the wall, even though he doesn't know what the writing says, is different than everyone else. All of his lords and the other rulers are concerned about his response. They see his color change. They see that, that idea of his limbs giving way is the idea of like, like basically his hips can't bear his weight. It says his knees knock together. This, this guy's lost his composure. Their concern is about him. His concern is about the writing. So even though he doesn't know what it says, what I want you to see is that there is an indication in the physical signs that he, he knows this is probably not good, right? That he knows this is probably not, that it's obviously not a normal thing, but even without knowing specifically what the words on the wall mean, he, he knows there's a problem. That speaks to conscience. That speaks to the conscience that God put in all of us, an understanding of who we are and who he is and who he's created us to be, that written or unwritten, whether you're in defiance of God or whether you're forgetful of the ways of God, no matter what, there is a sense that all of us carry, and there are moments in our lives where we go like, oh, this is not a good day, right? This is, this is not going to turn out great. That's what Belshazzar is feeling. Now, the people in his party, the people, the lords and all these other people who are partying with him, drinking out of the sacred vessels from Jerusalem, um, they, they aren't as nervous, apparently, about the hand that appeared out of nowhere. They don't seem concerned about that. They don't really seem concerned about the writing. They seem concerned about him. So then his wife shows up and says, hey, there's a guy, remember, from your father's uh, reign who was wise and could solve riddles and he was the chief of the magicians the implication or the indication there is that Daniel isn't a regular member of the court at this point right that that for one reason or another he's kind of out of sight out of mind and whether that's sort of a retirement or whether he's just sort of faded into obscurity as there's a new pharaoh that does not remember Daniel basically we, we don't know the text doesn't tell us why it is that Belshazzar doesn't immediately think of Daniel but Daniel's a little bit removed, and that's helpful to remember, too, as we're walking through this picture, that he's, he's called back into a situation that he used to be more present in. Um, but I want, as we read it, I want you to see his readiness for that call, right? I want you to see his readiness and his willingness. So uh, Belshazzar calls him in and says, hey, I, I've heard you can help. I will give you all this stuff if you can tell me uh, what these words on the wall mean. 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that, he dealt, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. 
You, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The, the thing I want you to see as we, as we sort of take this whole chapter in is, number one, the redundancy of things we've already seen. This is a, there's a repeating pattern here of God... Uh, not being acknowledged, God being ignored, or God being defied, God then sending a warning, and then what God says happens and occurs. He, he sends this message through his prophet, right? In this particular case, note that uh, the very same night that Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream, the Medes take over. What that means is that the Medes and the Persians weren't like on their way, they were there, right? The Medes and the Persians were already in town. Like, you don't, you don't, kill, you don't kill Belshazzar and take over the kingdom the same night un unless they were, in some ways, potentially even, already among them at the party, right? So there's some speculation by commentators that of the thousands that were at this celebration, some of those may already have been Medes and Persians in their midst. But they were so busy with what they're doing that they don't notice it. At the very least, what we can be sure of is it's not like on that night the Medes and the Persians start to march toward Babylon, but they are already at the gates, right? They're already there while these people are celebrating. That also says something about the, maybe the vigilance of Belshazzar in the midst of this situation. But, but our intents this week, as we're studying, is to talk about the ways in which the, the model of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the model for, for uh, life among people who don't give a rip about your faith, what that looks like, right? We aren't in exile. We have not been exiled by God. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are living in the now and the not yet. doesn't matter what country you're from or what city you live in or what neighborhood you're from. Uh, we, aren't, we aren't people in exile here, but we are ambassadors, right? Corinthians makes it very clear that we've been given the message of reconciliation. And so what that means is that in some ways, our churches are embassies and our lives are meant to carry the message of a foreign king to his intended audience. And, and that's, sort of the, that's the call of our lives, that Christ would be revealed through us to people who don't give a lick about him. As we look at this text, <clears throat> we could take a little bit of time and talk about Belshazzar. It's obviously a very bad day for him. Um, but, but I would rather look at what we see in Daniel because I think it's helpful for us in the redundancies of ambassadorship. Maybe that would be the title of my message tonight. The redundancies and the fatigue that can come in the redundancies of ambassadorship. We've all had bad days. We've all been around people who've had bad days. There are moments that we'd like to forget. For Belshazzar, this is certainly uh, the worst of days. My, I, I've told some of you before, my most embarrassing moment, I'm going to entrust that with you right now, one of the worst days of my life happened actually when I was a freshman in high school. Um, some of you know I was in the marching band, and uh, I'm, I'm, prou I'm a proud member of the marching band. I was in the drum line, right? And at my school, 
the, the freshmen played cymbals, and then the, the sophomores got to play the bass drum, and the juniors played the snare, and then the seniors were able to play the quads or the tritoms or whatever. So I'm a cymbal player my freshman year of high school, and if you've never been in a marching band, you wouldn't know this, but when you're a cymbal player in a marching band, there's two different ways you play the cymbals. You play them like crash cymbals, obviously, like Star Spangled Banner. That's where you bang them together, right? But in a marching band, you can also play the cymbals like a hi-hat cymbal, where you turn a cymbal on the bottom and one on the top, and you hold them together, and then what happens is the snare drummers will play the snare, and they'll, they'll play off the hi-hat as well. In order for that to happen in a marching band setting, I promise I'll get to my story in a second, in order for that to happen, the cymbal players have to actually learn the field routines, those formations they do on the field. You have to learn those completely in reverse because you have to march backwards in order for the snare drummers to access your cymbals, right? That's the setup for this story. Um, I grew up in Phoenix. I played in the marching band. I was a cymbal player. And uh, on the very last day of our marching band season, we played all the football games. Now we go to Arizona State University in the, in the football stadium there. There's like, you know, 20,000 people in the stands or whatever. It's like a big event. All the marching bands from all over Arizona come for ASU Band Day. And you, perform, you get the opportunity to perform three songs. And then they have uh, professional judges from around the world who judge your routines. And they like record their comments and they give you a score. You can get a C, which isn't good. You can get a B, which also is not good. You can get an A, which is all right. Or you can get a 1. A 1 is like the top score. My marching band at Ironwood High School in Phoenix had only ever gotten one. So that's the standard for us, right? We're, we're known for being good at what we do. I'm standing on the sidelines at parade rest, waiting for our chance to go on. They've given us the two-minute warning to say, hey, you're about to take the field. And uh, so I'm waiting. Uh, we're ready to perform our three songs. So standing, this is, this is the culmination of everything we've worked on all season. And then... Uh, the unthinkable happens, right? The unthinkable happens. Um, my, my right-hand symbol comes untied. The way a symbol works, by the way, is there's a leather strap that goes through a hole in the center. And you tie that in a double knot on the inside. It's not really supposed to come undone. But as I'm standing at parade rest on the sideline, two-minute warning comes. That knot comes undone, and that symbol slides off the strap and crashes on the ground, right? It makes this horrendous noise. On top of the noise of the cymbal crash, now I got the upperclassmen behind me who were like, you stupid freshman, you idiot. We worked all season for this, and now we're standing right here, and you can't even keep your cymbal tied? You better pick up that cymbal and get it going right now. And I'm like, ah! So I lean down real quick to get the cymbal, and when I do, I hear a noise that's worse than the sound of the cymbal crash. Uh, the sound that I hear then is the sound of my pants ripping. And when I say that on my pants rip, I was wearing these like black polyester band pants, and you know, you just get them out of the band closet, so they're not... It's kind of one-size-fits-all, but for husky kids, it's kind of one-size-does-not-fit-all. And so I'm wearing these black polyester band pants. I hear this rip, and I don't mean there's like a tear in my pants. They rip from the bottom of my zipper all the way to my back belt loop. So essentially what I have now are two separate legs attached by a zipper. And immediately I'm like, oh, that can't be good. And the guys behind me are like laughing now, and they're like, dude, we can see your underpants, you know? I'm just wearing like Hanes, whitey tidy underpants in the back, and there's no time. Right at that moment, I get my cymbal retied. I can feel the breeze blowing through my pants. The drum major blows the whistle, and we got to take the field. I got no time to do anything about this tear, uh, and so I'm standing there, and I'm just like, well, here, you know, the show must go on or whatever, and then the, the, it dawns on me that all three of the numbers we prepared for the, the judges None of them require a crash symbol. They all require a hi-hat, which means my first four counts are one, two, three, four. And I got to march all three of those songs with my rear end facing 20,000 people in the stands. Uh, not my happiest day, right? Not a day. 
that I was excited about. I was on the verge of tears through the whole thing. And then to make it worse, I go back to school on Monday, and the band teacher's like, hey, great news, I got a videotape of the performance. We're going to put it on the big screen. So he puts the VHS in, he comes on the screens, and the judges have recorded their, like, their notes, right? So the judges are like, I swear to you, it sounds like this. They go, trumpet players, we love to see those high knees. Keep it up. Keep it up. Flute players, the pitch is incredible. Way to go. I mean, it just sounds crystal clear. Lovely, lovely. Cymbal players, nice underwear. <laughs> right? And I'm like, no! I can tell you, all four years of high school, that story came up repeatedly, right? Uh, we have all had terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, right? That's my terrible, no, horrible, no good, very bad day. This is one of those for Belshazzar, right? This is a day where, where by the end of the day, he will no longer be alive and his kingdom will be gone. It's much worse than having your polyester band pants tear. But in these moments, and there are moments like these for all of us, in these moments, what I love is that there is access to a man of God who can come alongside him and be readily available, right? A person who can be with him to do all the things we talked about yesterday, to speak with compassion and with clarity, right? To give counsel. In this particular case, there's not really much that Daniel can say. But, but the reason why I think this text is important and I want us to think about it is that we are a people who are just like Belshazzar. And the, and the people we live, live with are just like Belshazzar too. We are prone to one of two things. We are prone to an outright rejection of who God is, right? You can read a passage like Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 uh, verse 18 says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, right? That is potentially what Belshazzar is doing here. It doesn't tell us clearly in the text whether Belshazzar's mistakes have to do with forgetfulness, right? Or whether they have to do with outright defiance. It doesn't tell us in the text which one of those this is. What it does say is, you should have known better. All of these things have happened to your father. They all happened in your knowledge. Your wife remembers, you should remember, and you have defied God, right? It says in Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Romans 1 describes uh, the denial of our conscience. It describes the denial of our understanding. It describes the denial of our intended purpose, the purpose for which we were created, which is to glorify and worship God. Right? It describes the denial of even the very worth of knowing God. And it denies that there's any consequence to rejecting Him. We live in a world where that kind of denial is prevalent. And you might have coworkers and friends and neighbors or family members who were in any one or all of these denials. Right? And that can be tiring. It can be tiring to sit at a Thanksgiving table and have conversations with people who don't really understand the worth of knowing God. Who understand the things of God in that He has revealed Himself through what has been made and yet they have no interest in glorifying Him, which is the reason they were made. 
And I wonder if there aren't some of you tonight who who are maybe a little bit envious of the fact that Daniel has kind of stepped off the stage. I said before, I don't know exactly how he steps off the stage, and so I don't want to read too much into that. And I have no idea whether he was put out to pasture by Belshazzar, or whether he retired as an old man, or whether seasons came and went, or whether Daniel just kind of got tired of always having to be the guy to go, hey, can we pay attention to God here? Hey, can we pay attention to God here? But it's entirely possible that that's what's happened. And the only reason that might be our guess is because I'm guessing you probably felt like that before. That sometimes you just feel like, I don't want to say it again. I don't want to have the conversation again about how good God is and how people should surrender their lives. I don't want to go through the gospel again to just have somebody shrug me off or or push me away. There There is a danger for us as ambassadors in the world in which we live to get tired of taking the king's message to the king's people, right? There can be a moment where we go, you know what, I don't, I don't even see, I've, I've shared the gospel with my brother so many times, and it doesn't go anywhere, so like, why would I do this again? I'm, like, it, I'm wasting my time, right? And so what I want to talk about tonight is, is some of that fatigue that can happen in an ambassadorship when we kind of go, like, I'm, I'm tired of saying the same things to the same people. And yet, what we see in, Dan, in, in Daniel chapter 5 is Daniel's willingness to come back. Daniel's willingness to step up again. And you know what? To be honest with you, part of what Daniel does is he repeats the same old stuff again, right? So when I said at the beginning, like, if it feels to you like there's redundancy here, if it feels like, wow, Daniel's just telling us the stuff we already studied last night, well, guess what? He's telling them things they should already know as well. So in some ways, that that fatigue you might feel from hearing it repeated a second time, I want you to feel it and think about it because it's similar to the fatigue you might feel in just living as a revelation of Christ in your neighborhood, right? There will be and can be a temptation to lose heart and to lose nerve. You probably don't care about tattoos, but the most recent tattoo I got not too long ago is this one that says heart and nerve, and that's because I I think this is the recipe for success and resilience in pastoral ministry. I don't think we can continue to be ambassadors in the culture today without heart and nerve. And, and what I mean by that, and I'm, now I'm quoting a guy named Bolsinger, a great book I read called Tempered Resilience. But he basically says that there will always be this temptation for us in ambassadorship to lose heart, which is the moment where we stop loving the people that, that, that are around us, right? You think Daniel was ever tempted to stop loving the Babylonians? Yeah, did he, did, like, it would be hard to love them at all. It's surprising that he is as loving as he is. He has all kinds of excuses and all kinds of reasons to hate those people, right? To treat them with contempt. We talked about that last night. None of us would be surprised if Daniel's response would have been similar to Jonah's, who was like, God's going to destroy Belshazzar? Good. Belshazzar's my enemy, right? And there will always be a temptation for us to, to lose our love for people because it can be tiring to say the same things over and over again, to repeat the same messages, or to have to say things to people that they should already know, right? If you're a parent... Uh, you're probably tired of saying to your kids, I already told this thing to you, right? Or if you're a kid, and we all are that, you maybe you're tired of hearing your parents say, I already told you this, right? There is a fatigue that can come. The, the loss of nerve, on the other hand, is, is the, the temptation in our lives as ambassadors to back away from the things that God has called us to. Because sometimes when we meet with resistance, or sometimes when we meet with sabotage, or sometimes when we meet with criticism, or we meet with... Um, like flat-out lies about us, right? Slander, right? There's a temptation to be like, man, if people are going to be mean to me, then we don't have to do the thing I want to do. I won't say it anymore, right? If, they, if they're going to be mean to me, then I'll just back down. And, and there is a reminder for me all the time, right here in front of my face. I have my wife, this is my wife's handwriting. 
But there's a reminder for me constantly that I can't do the job God's called me to do. And I, and I don't mean even just vocational pastorate, right? Because there's probably very few of us who are doing that. But all of us are ambassadors. All of us are called to be a revelation of Christ. And there is a temptation for you on a regular basis, faced with the denial of conscience and denial of understanding and denial of purpose and denial of the worth of knowing Him, denial of consequence, to go, these people are jerks and they're mean to me, so I'm going to go somewhere far away. Or I'm going to hunker down with all a bunch of people that think exactly like me, right? I love the passage in, uh, I don't think we've talked about this yet this week, but on Easter night, right, in the, in the narrative in the Gospel of John, the night of the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. It's like John, I think it's John 20. Um, it's either... Uh, you guys are going to, you'll correct me later, but I think it's, it's the night of the resurrection and they're, uh, it says the disciples are all, they're all hunkered in a, in a room together behind a locked door because they're scared of the Jews, right? And I love that Jesus, it says Jesus just walks into the room, right? It doesn't say he unlocks the door or that he opens the door. He just walks in and he says, shalom, right? He says, peace be unto you. And then he says, you know, as the father's called me, I'm calling you, go be ambassadors, right? He breathes on them, he says, be filled with the Spirit, and he says, pretty much, the summary is he says, everywhere you take forgiveness, it will go, but if you don't take forgiveness, it's not going, right? It's up to you to get out of this locked room, but do we understand why, why they might have been hunkered down in a locked room with a bunch of people who look and sound and think exactly like them? Yeah, it's safer and easier, it's more comfortable in that room, Right? And there will always be a temptation for us to hunker in a locked room with a bunch of people who look and think and feel like us. Why? Because we live in a culture that is sometimes an act of defiance of God. I don't know whether Daniel went away or out of the king's palace. I don't know if he's out of that because he's tired or if he's out of it because he was asked to. But what I love is that, is that he comes back. And I think for us, my, my recommendation is that the world we live in today needs us not to leave in the first place. They need us to be present. They need to be consistent. They need to be there, right? They need to be there. Now, the other thing I want to point out tonight, when you follow my sequence here, is we don't know in Daniel chapter 5 if, if Belshazzar's failure is because of an outward uh, rejection of God or if it is simply forgetfulness. And, and the reason why that question mark comes up for me is that God has made it clear from the beginning of human history that we're forgetful people, and we know that, right? Um, there are all kinds of examples, but maybe the easiest is to look at like Exodus chapter 12. When, they, when the people of God finally come out of the, the, the Egypt, they've been enslaved. They come out of Egypt and they're on their way. You would think like the, the key would be like, just run, you know, like just get away. Head to the promised land, get a move on. And instead, God establishes three holidays. That might seem like weird timing to you, right? And it might have seemed like weird timing to them. That they're, they're fleeing from Egypt. They're running for their lives, basically. And God's like, hey, hold on, I want to establish a couple things. I want you to celebrate the Passover every year. And I also want you to consecrate your firstborn every year. And I also want us to, you know, he gives them the, uh, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, right? He establishes those three in Exodus 12 and 13. It's kind of weird timing. But what God says to them is, I want you to do these things every year so that you have a marker from which to tell other people what I've done and who I am. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 25, talking about this, he says, When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as He's promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, Why do you mean by, What do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. 
God gives them these holidays or these celebrations, these feast days, because he knows that they will forget what he's done. And they're not any different than we are. It's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to celebrate God on one day and forget who he is the next day. To remember his victories in the moment that we're celebrating and then the very next day to kind of forget who he is. It's not of, of insignificance that in Deuteronomy 6 God says this, and this is a longer section, but bear with me and listen to what he says. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care. If you're the kind of person who uh, underlines things or circles them, circle that take care. God's like, be careful. When you come into this place that you didn't build, and these cisterns that you didn't dig, and vineyards that you didn't plant, when you eat and are full, when you have a full belly, he says, be careful lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Well, why does God have to say that? I don't even think we have to wonder, right? I'm guessing every person in the room that's a follower of Jesus has had those moments where your belly's full and, and you just don't even remember who God is, right? Because you're thinking about your own success, or you're thinking about your position in life, or you're thinking about how happy you are, how happy your house makes you, or your swimming pool, or your wife, or your husband, or your kids, or whatever. And we get to these places where we have all these things, and what, is, what has God said here? You're going to get to a place where you're very satisfied with stuff in your life. And you're going to be so satisfied with the stuff in your life, you're not going to remember where that stuff came from. So don't forget, he says. Don't forget. Why? Because we're, we're people who are prone to forget. You got passwords that you don't remember, right? I had, a, I had like a thing that happened to me um, where I, uh, I needed to reset my Wi-Fi router, right? I, I got a deal with Spectrum, and so I needed to reset my Wi-Fi router, and I, so I called the customer service. I'm like, hey, my Wi-Fi's not working. I, need, uh, I just need help resetting it. And the lady's like, no problem, sir. I'm happy to help you today. She goes, can you, uh, can you tell me your name? And I said, yeah. She says, can you give me your phone number? I gave her that. She says, what's your address? I told her. She said, uh, okay, you have a... Um, you have a security question on your internet account. And she says, I can't, I can't reset your router unless you answer the security question. I'm like, no problem, go for it. Like, I'm, I'm ready. She goes, what's your favorite book? I'm like, ha, easy, the Bible. She goes, that's not, that's not the answer. And I was like, yes, it is. And she's like, no, I'm looking at, the, I'm looking at your account, and the, the security question is, what's your favorite book? And it doesn't say the Bible. And I was like, okay, I mean, maybe it says... Maybe it says Hebrews? Like, that's my favorite book of the Bible, so maybe it's Hebrews. And she's like, no, sir, it's not, it's not the Bible. And I was like, well, listen, I'm a pastor and a Bible teacher. I've been a Bible teacher for a long time. And I am telling you unequivocally, my favorite book is the Bible. Like, there's, no, there's not another book. There is not a circumstance in which I would answer that question any other way. It is just the Bible, always the Bible. For the rest of I would rather die than deny the Bible, whatever, right? Like, you know, I'm getting real flustered by it. And she goes, sir, I don't... I can tell you're getting angry, but I'm just telling you that's not, that's not the answer. And I was like, she goes, are there any other books you like? And I was like, I like thousands of books, but I have one favorite, you know? And she's like, 
is there anybody else who might be the one who set up this account? And I was like, oh. And I'm like, yeah. I thought my wife must have done this. And I said, will you, um, I said, the question is, what's my favorite book? And she goes, yeah. And I said, will you just try Twilight? <laughs> and she goes, yes, sir, that's it. I'm resetting your router. And I'm like, no, wrong. It is not Twilight. That's not my favorite book, right? <laughs> my wife loves that I tell that story, by the way. So she's not here this week. I can get away with it. No problem. I love the story in, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, where, where this, this immediately follows the feeding of the 4,000, right? The feeding of the 4,000, and Jesus and his disciples get in a boat, and he says, Jesus says something inadvertently about avoiding the yeast of the Pharisees, and the disciples start to freak out because they think he's hinting that he's hungry, but none of them brought any food, right? So they're with Jesus, who just fed 4,000 people by his miraculous power, and that's just the dudes, and they're worried about what they're going to eat, right? Matthew chapter 16 uh, and verse uh, 8, Jesus says to them, aware of them, because they're, they're saying among themselves, nobody brought any bread. Did you bring bread? No, I thought you were going to bring the bread. Who brought the bread? We're supposed to have bread. Jesus wants bread. And Jesus goes, oh, you of little faith, verse 8 of Matthew 16, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread, right? But what's interesting in that text is like these are the disciples of Jesus who literally stood there while he fed thousands of people and they're worried about the sandwiches they didn't make. I mean, that feels like me a lot. There are so many times where I'm stressed out about circumstances and yet and yet God has provided yesterday, and last year, and two years ago, and ten years ago. And I, I, I do have a little swimming pool, and I really love it, but I wouldn't have that swimming pool if God hadn't provided all the things he's provided. You know what I'm saying? But it's easy to forget. When your stomach's full and you're at rest, he says, don't forget. Be careful. Take care that you don't forget that I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt, that I'm the one that put you in this place. So it's, it's possible, just knowing human nature, it's possible that what's happening with Belshazzar is forgetfulness, a lack of remembrance that the things that happened with his father may have been important to him at one time, but they've ceased to be important to him because of his own power, because of his own hunger for celebration, because of all of the accolades of other people and whatever, that he's lost sight of the God who put him in the spot he's in. That's why there are multiple places in the New Testament. 2 Peter uh, 1 verse 12, Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of remembrance. The New Testament writers affirm that it's good to hear the same things over and over again. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I think sometimes we can be uh, obsessed with novelty. And we can almost become, uh, we can place a lot of pressure on ourselves to be novel. To feel like I can't just keep saying the same things to the same people in the same way because they're, they're, nothing has changed. As a pastor, it's, there's a funny thing that happens like, because i got to preach almost every week. And there's always this pressure of like, man, I, I don't remember if I've told this story before. Like, I think I told this story in 2017 and some of the people might remember the story and like, maybe I shouldn't use it. My wife's like, Darren... I don't remember what you taught three weeks ago. Nobody's going to remember what you did in 2017. And I'm like, okay, that's nice. Thanks, fair. <laughs> right? 
but we're forgetful people. It's why one of the functions of the Holy Spirit, according to John 14, verse 26, is to bring to our memory the things that Jesus has said. John 14, 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Right? Because we are people of forgetfulness, and so are our neighbors, and so are our coworkers, and so are the people in the world around us. Like, what I, what I really just want to keep saying to you, and again, I get it's redundant, but the redundancy is the point. Don't lose heart, and don't lose nerve. Don't put yourself out to pasture. Don't stop saying the same things. Don't stop being present in the life of people that you've already talked to, people that you've already shared with, people that you've already loved on, people that you've already served, you've already mowed their grass, you've already washed their dishes, and they didn't immediately become a Christian. Don't quit. Don't quit, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. In, in Daniel chapter 5, my favorite thing of Daniel chapter 5 is Daniel's doing the same thing he's been doing through the whole book. And it's a reminder to me that sometimes in the repetition of the same stuff that, that God is using me to, to, either, to either transform the defiance that sometimes happens according to Romans 1 or to transform the forgetfulness that's true in all of us. When we remember and when we help other people remember, we, we draw them to worship. We, we know Him more, right? We build confidence. Well, there is a call for us to not get weary, and these are verses you'll know, I think. But Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's a funny thing that happens with Americans, too, where I think we're all, um, I would be careful now because some of you, like, the, like you bought cabins so you could move to the mountains and get away from your neighbors. But there, that's just like an American thing. We're all sort of fantasizing about that moment in our life where, where we'll live 25 miles away from the closest neighbor, right? There's like this American fantasy that goes, someday I'm going to get to a place where I can just sit on a rocking chair on my porch and never have to deal with any other human beings. Can I tell you that's an unbiblical fantasy? It's an unbiblical fantasy. There, there is no trajectory for a disciple, an ambassador of Christ, that ends up on a rocking chair 25 miles from your closest neighbor. That's just, that's just not how discipleship works. Even eternity, I don't want to burst your bubble, but if you, if you think you're going to be in a mansion that's 25 miles from the next person in heaven, heaven's a city, y'all. That's an urban environment. Sorry for all of you mountain people, right? But, but we are headed to a city. We are headed to an urban community where we will be shoulder to shoulder with people created in the image of God forever, right? Don't let that freak you out. You're claustrophobic or whatever. Don't worry about it, right? God will sort it out. You'll be okay. But what I'm trying to reinforce here and what I want you to understand is that it's easy to get weary because people can be mean and people can, people can be cruel and people can be disinterested and they can be dishonest. and they, Like there's all kinds of reasons to, to just sort of move away, right? And to just not say it again. But what I love about Daniel is that he steps back up and he repeats these things again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, and I'll finish here for tonight. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The reality is that some of, our, some of our temporal work can be in vain. And sometimes that translates into the way we think about discipleship and ambassadorship. You may have failed business ventures. You may have a failed marriage. You may have kids that are a mess. Like There may be other things in your life that you're looking at and going like, 
uh, this is like my discipleship, my ambassadorship, my impact on my neighborhood is just one more thing that doesn't work. I've been baking pies for the people on my neighborhood for the last 10 years, and nobody's ever asked me about Jesus. So that's it with the pies, right? And it can feel like one more failed venture, right? But the reality is that, that there, is, there is work that God does in the long run. Uh, to be honest with you, camp ministry was deceptive to me. I worked at Hume Lake for nine years, uh, actually, and then four summers on top of that. And what's funny about a place like Hume Lake is that people come up here uh, like prepped and ready to hear from God. So like kids are literally coming off the bus going like, I'm here so God will speak to me, some of them. Some of them are like, I'm here to meet a girl or whatever. But, um, but there are lots of kids who come up here and, and they, they're ready to go. They're like, I want God to speak to me. That's why I came to Hume Lake. And you, get, you can get the sense that like, oh, people are eager to hear from God. And then you move to Long Beach or you move to Fullerton or wherever you're from and you realize like, I'm going to be building relationships with people for 10 years. I'm going to be baking pies forever. And I'm, all I'm going to get is the opportunity just to bless them and to love them, to, to do the John the Baptist thing and point away from myself, to redirect people's attention to who, to who God is. And, and it could take a long time. Why? Because it's not my job to transform people's lives. It's my job to be an ambassador, to take the king's message to the king's people and to do so faithfully and then to trust his timing, right? We talked about this earlier this week, that I'm certain of who God is, that I'm certain of what God has said, and I am certain that I'm uncertain of how he's going to work in, in the people around me. I'm certain that I'm uncertain about that. And so all I can do is just be faithful. Today, tomorrow, the next day. Not, not go out to pasture, not give up, not lose heart, not lose nerve, not start hating the people who disagree with me, not back away from the things that God's called me to. I love that in Daniel 5, in a story that feels redundant, and even as I'm reading it, it feels redundant, like, okay, one more guy punished for unfaithfulness. I am reminded that that, that is all of us. We're just on this, like, <laughs> this long road together that has really, really high, high points and really, really low, low points, and we just have to stay in it together. And, and more than ever, the followers of Christ have to just keep revealing Jesus, even when it feels like that's not going anywhere, right? The faithfulness of Daniel is instructive to us with regard to our ambassadorship wherever you come from. Because even if it seems like they don't want to hear it again, they need to hear it again, right? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word and a message like this one that is um, certainly as much for me as it is for anybody who's sitting in the room, that for any of us who are um, committed and called to being ambassadors, which is all of us are called, that's just part and parcel of being a Jesus follower, but, but for those of us who are, who are endeavoring to do this on a daily basis, it, it's just hard. And so will you... Um, Will you help us again to remember the passages that say that you are with us and that we should not grow weary, that there is, that there is a, a reward, that your glory is on the other side of this, even in the moments that feel like failure, that you are being honored and your name is being lifted up, that even though Belshazzar is defeated, you are glorified in your servant Daniel as he comes and says the same things that he said a hundred times before. Thank you for his faithfulness in that. And help us, to, help us to take that same posture in the places that you have placed us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.